Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello, happy new year. How's it going? Um, I'm at home today. I took down the tree. It's Saturday, the 6th of January. Is that too late? I wasn't really sure if it's supposed to be the 5th or the 6th, and then we just ran out of time on the 5th. So, yeah, took down the tree today. So, it's kind of annoying. I mean, I love having the decorations up, but then again, our tree had done good service and was kind of looking quite dead if I'm honest with you like when I took the decorations off a lot of the branches snapped and that kind of thing but it's also quite funny because Richard and I were doing a bit of a like look around like have we definitely got all the decorations packed up and actually to be honest in our house it's quite hard to tell there's a lot of things that I collect that could definitely double as a decoration but anyway um I hope everything's right with you hope you had a lovely Christmas however you spent it and new year uh, we did my favourite thing for New Year. Well, I've got two favourite things. I either like to stay in or I like to do some work. Because when you're working, you get to do all the fun stuff, like be somewhere that's, you know, a bit of a bit of a happening. But also, um, you know, you get fed and get something to drink and transport and all the stuff that you have to worry about normally with New Year. So Richard and I did some DJing in Brighton, which was really fun. And my brother came and some friends, and my dad. So... It's actually quite a sweet little night out. But apart from that, I've been very, very reclusive. Um, I finished the tour uh, sort of towards the end of December, and then I did one more show in Glasgow, and that was on the 16th. And then I haven't worked since then, which has been lovely. Well, I say I haven't worked since then. I've been doing bits and bobs this week because I've started the year with a very unusual thing, and that a song I sang a long time ago has re-entered the charts. And it's kind of crazy. So Murder on the Dance Floor, a song I love singing anyway and already have lots of adventures with, has now had this, I don't know, revival, I guess, because it's featured in Saltburn, which I probably told you about before Christmas, but Saltburn is a movie by Emerald Fennell, written directed by her, and Murder on the Dance Floor is used in its entirety at the end of the movie in a way where, this isn't a spoiler, someone dances to it and they haven't got any clothes on. <laughs> and um, the film's been a big hit and it's brought the song along with it so how lovely and really quite bizarre for me to be having a top 10 song in the UK that I released when I was half my age I'm 44 now and I was 22 when it came out that's insane but lots of fun 
So yeah, I've been enjoying that. Well, I've been enjoying it. It's felt surreal. It's a little bit like lockdown times, really, when I knew a lot of people watching Kitchen Disco, but I wasn't really seeing anyone. It feels very similar because I'm getting amazing, you know, facts and statistics about how the song's doing, um, not just in the UK, but around the world. But I'm not really seeing anyone. I'm just here with my kids trying to sort out toys. Mickey's got his birthday tomorrow. He's going to be five. So I've got to wrap some stuff when he goes to bed tonight and get the helium out and do some balloons for him and all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of taking up equal headspace, I would say, if not more. But also, of course, a return to the podcast, which is really lovely. And, you know, this is really glorious because I'd already recorded a load before the tour, so I feel quite like, yay, I can be hibernating, but I've also got these nice conversations to share with you. I don't know why I'm being so... uh, languid in my delivery to you I've got four kids in the next door room and at some point they're going to notice I'm not there I've sort of crept out I love having them around I'm kind of ready for them to go back to school now it's been a lot of mummy mummy and sometimes you just I have this vision of myself being sort of split in two or growing tentacles either of those would be very helpful anyway this week's guest so I first met Gabby Logan when I did a show called Name That Tune with Alan Carr. So it was a couple of years ago now. And Gabby did really well on the show. It was like a celebrity edition. So it was her and Vic Hope. And um, yeah, I played the piano. (laughs) I'm laughing about that because it's not really something I normally do. But I was playing the piano there. And Gabby was on the show. And I just thought she gave off such a lovely... Um, energy. She seemed like such a nice woman. And obviously, I already knew a fair amount about her. I'd seen her doing her sport broadcasting. And I also knew about her podcast, The Midpoint. And I thought she seems um, smart and funny. And um, I think she's a very good broadcaster. She's really good at interviewing people. So she approached me, would you like to do my podcast? And I said, how about you do mine? So I got to have a lovely conversation with her and she came around to my house. She has twins, a son and a daughter. They're now 18. So we spoke about having kids at that age, but we also spoke about um, what it's like to lose someone significant in your life because Gabby had done has already done a few interviews talking about her brother who tragically died when he was only 15 and Gabby was 19 and obviously that shapes your life immeasurably and I think sometimes when they have these big events hold on yes Jess he's not letting me go on that all right two seconds listen I'm just recording something and I'll come and sort you out yes yes I will I will two minutes two minutes who who am I talking about Mickey Mickey two more minutes there we go, see? Oh, he's not happy with that outcome. Um, yes, when you have these big life events, they just change things. And I think Gabby is a very good example of someone where she's decided, well, I don't know if she's decided or it's how her instinct was or just, you know, her emotional response was to make her life count for more because of what her brother missed out on. And, uh, oh, for God's sake, can you hear them calling me? Two minutes, Mickey! Two minutes, my love. Okay, two minutes. Yes, thank you. Anyway, Gabby, I'm sorry, this is a very uh, inappropriate thing to be consistently interrupted. Um, but I have, there's, no, there's never going to be a better time, so here I am. Uh, yeah, so I really love talking to Gabby and talking about this point in our lives as well and what it's like to be in your 40s, 50s, and how you feel about yourself, and what life has in store. And I read her autobiography, and it's really funny. And yeah, we had such a good chat. I really enjoyed it, and I'm very excited to 
start 2024 with my conversation with Gabby. Um, so thanks very much for coming to find me here. Uh, I can't believe how long I've been doing the podcast now. So much fun. I've stopped, got some amazing people lined up for the rest of the series and beyond. And yeah, Happy New Year. And I'll see you on the other side. See you in a minute. exciting to be talking to you today Gabby. I feel like I could spend the whole hour just talking about solely about your Freeze the Fear experience because I watched all of that and I thought it was incredible and I've just finished your book which is absolutely brilliant. Oh thank you. Yeah I really loved it and you made me laugh out loud a lot as well. <laughs> You're a funny woman. That's good. So many things that really made me chuckle and I, poor Richard I was reading a lot of it with him opposite me and I'd be going oh, I just have to tell you this bit because I was <laughs> laughing. Um, but I think I'd quite like to stop actually by asking you about your podcast because mm. Uh, you started doing your podcast, The Midpoint, around the same time I think I started doing this in 2020. Mm-hmm. So what's your relationship like with your podcast? I started the podcast um, around the pandemic time, kind of early in uh, that period, like the spring of 2020. And I'd wanted to do it for about a year before. And real life kept getting in the way and I was really busy. And then suddenly I thought, right, I've got time to do this idea, which was born out of a moment where I'd walked past a mirror and seen somebody in the reflection that I didn't recognise inside, you know, because I had this eureka, opposite eureka moment where I went, oh, there's some, what are those lines? What is it? And it wasn't a vanity thing. It was just this, inside my head, I was still this kind of mid-30s person that had loads of life ahead. And then this sparked this sudden realisation that I was what you called kind of middle-aged. I was in this midpoint of my life. And what did that mean? And was it different to all these kind of thoughts about what my parents' experience or my grandparents' experience would have been? And and then I started noticing middle-aged people more, you know, kind of, it's like when you're pregnant, you notice lots of pregnant people mm-hmm. and, um, and you're, you're kind of, your age group suddenly comes into your your vision a bit more and I realized that there's lots of different choices now in midlife to say a few generations ago and also that people are changing careers and doing so the initial idea was to do an inspiring podcast where people had done different things in midlife and had big decisions to make and actually it just morphed into something else then and these conversations that we have around health and relationships and and of course the other conversation that has kind of spawned its own series of podcasts around menopause specifically which when I started the podcast Sophie I didn't even know what really the menopause was. And I honestly had no idea that I was already experiencing perimenopausal symptoms at that point at 46, 47. So it definitely wasn't about women's health initially or those things. And I I just love it. I love, I love the chats that I have with people and I love the freedom as well to broadcast in a way that is, you yeah, know, totally... Yeah, quite different, isn't it? Yeah, I love radio anyway. I started out in radio, but it's different, obviously, to radio. But it, it's certainly different to live television <laughs> because you've got so much more control over the situation and who you're talking to. And, and also, I love the generosity of the community. You know, I have not had, honestly, in 100 episodes nearly, hardly... A single knockback. You know, the person that has taken me a while to get pinned down, I've got a date for her now, is Kathy Burke. And she <laughs> joked about it when I went on her podcast. She goes, I've been trying to avoid you <laughs> and get to the end point, <laughs> not the midpoint. <laughs> she said, I thought I'd be too old now. <laughs> she said it with a few expletives. Um, but uh, she's coming on. But it's that part of it I love. And, you know, there's this kind of mutual kind of appreciation with different podcasts and you pop on to other people's and it's lovely. I really, um, I really enjoy it. And so much so, I kind of now have created a perfectly kind of isolated space in the house, which is my podcast room. And um, and I could do other things in there, obviously, and be on other people's podcasts. But um, I do like going on to other people's podcasts as well, because I think there is this kind of 
cross-pollination in the community. Definitely. And I wonder if as well, sometimes you start a project not quite knowing fully what it's going to offer to you. Mm. And so maybe I wonder if like aspects of the conversations you're having is sort of giving you a little bit of a map yeah. to potential things that can oh, happen next totally year. Oh, it was totally self-serving. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, okay, I'm not sure what's going on in this period of life. I'm going to ask some wise people. Mm. And so we get experts on as well. And it does offer me a kind of, you know, uh, insights and um, inspiration, you know, from people's experiences and having kind of that um, that well of knowledge and information from people who might be a bit older or they might be really expert in a certain area. Um, I didn't know about foods, for example, that, you know, help with um, kind of symptoms of menopause or foods that, you know, are much better for us as we get older and why your body reacts differently to certain foods as you get older. Suddenly mm. you feel like you're developing allergies and and actually, it's not that you're necessarily getting an allergy per se, but your body just doesn't like those things as much anymore. You don't process because of your hormonal changes. You don't process food in the same way. So all those things I had no idea about, you know. Mm. And I suppose I'm quite instinctive with my body and my diet, so I would have worked it out. But it's always nice to have the science behind it, isn't it? When you hear, you know, a doctor or a nutritionist explain why you're feeling this way. So that's just one kind of little kind of snapshot of the areas that, you know, we discuss and what we talk about, relationships fascinating you know family dynamics you know your your one-to-one whatever you're you know kind of whether you're married or not whether you're in you know um a long-term relationship how those all kind of change and how some people stay together through that period other people you know move apart and and so it's yeah it is a um as you say there's something of a map there that you can kind of see and Yes, it's also for me, working in sport my whole life pretty much professionally, as well as other things, I feel like I'm speaking to so many more women now. And Mm -hmm. it's always been very much like men come up to me on the street and go, oh, yeah, what do you think about that game the other night? Which is lovely. (laughs) But it's so nice when women come up to me in restaurants and things and go, oh, I just want to let you know, I really love that episode you did with Penny Lancaster because I was feeling like that. You know, and I kind of want to hug people, you know. This woman came up to me, this is God's Gospel, two weeks ago in Boots, where I live. And I was coming out the door, she was coming in and she said, oh, hello. And she looked at me like in that way because people feel like they really know you. Of course, and she, yeah. her eyes started filling up and she said, you've saved my life. Um, and I was like, oh my God. She said, I was so down. I was so depressed. I had such bad anxiety. I didn't know what it was. And then I realized listening to your podcast that it was a perimenopausal symptom. I went off and I, she said, I genuinely was at my absolute kind of lowest point. I didn't know what to do. I was not enjoying family life. I wasn't enjoying my work. And I just feel so liberated now because I've, you know, I've done something about it and I've kind of, and I, I properly started like, you know, greeting as my husband would say, like my eyes were kind of filled with tears and giving her a massive hug. But it was just, I've kind of skipped out the shop going, that's just lovely, isn't it? To be able to connect with people in that way, which I don't think presenting football quite does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it gives them something. But I think that conversations, especially because you tend to listen to a podcast in a time where you're maybe having some time for yourself, maybe Mm. you're busy walking or you're, you know, traveling somewhere or you're Mm. pottering around at home and you've got, it feels like you are the third person at the table or I guess the fourth if you've got your expert mm. and your guest um, and I you know I did your podcast earlier this week the recording and I, I really I feel like I haven't had a, a lot of those things we spoke about and really spoken about anywhere else mm. and I think it's also really brilliant at that this stage in our lives to check in with yourself because I think your relationship with yourself a bit like when you said you saw yourself in a mirror and got mm. a bit of a jolt it can kind of be based on something that's maybe not entirely up to date with the you you really are. 
you know, I've got things in my wardrobe I haven't worn now for 15 years. I probably won't revisit that, but I haven't quite let it go either. <laughs> so it's about kind of keeping in step with yourself a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So I think that's really healthy just to check in. And with how you are emotionally, because mm. when you get to the, the midpoint of your life, I remember when I hit my 40s, I said to my mum, I don't really know what 40s is. I kind mm. of got an idea of what 30s was, but 40s, like, what's that? She said, it, it's, there's lots of it that's brilliant, but what you might notice is that for some people, it's a time when they might feel a bit of regret creeping in because do some doors close that don't open again. Mm. So I think it's good to kind of take stock of yourself in your 40s and your 50s and just check in because, you know, your kids are growing mm. up if you have children and you might be left in a chapter that you maybe haven't given yourself a lot of headspace for. Mm. And now, especially prudent, I suppose, because you, your, your eldest your eldest, your children are the same age, but your children's ages. He is technically the eldest, actually, by 20 minutes. <laughs> yes, so. and actually quite crucially, as I understand it, the 20 minutes is yeah. vital because if it had been like 25 minutes, five later, minutes yeah. they would have been on different days. Yeah. Um, I said, we decided afterwards, by the way, had it been, we'd have lied. Yeah. We'd have just told <laughs> just them they had simplicity. the same... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very practical yeah, approach to um, having twins born within a very small frame of time. But I think... Um, you know, it is a time, isn't it, when they reach... You spend... When they're born, you imagine this idea of when they're 18. Mm. It's like a bit of a drop point, isn't it? Like mm. You work out how old you'll be when they're 18. Yeah. But suddenly you find yourself, you've actually got there. Mm. And how are you finding it? How have you found it? Yeah, it's interesting because I did exactly that. I was I was really... Because we, we went through IVF to have Reuben and Lois. And I tried to start getting pregnant from the age of 28, which my friends were all gasping at. They thought it was just terribly young. And like, what was I, what was I thinking? You know? Anyway, it turned out by the time I did get pregnant, which you might have read the book, one of my best mates was already on to child three. You know, and she hadn't even been thinking about it when I was starting. So I was playing catch up then as well with a few friends, you know, in that period of life where you're going, oh, I'm 32 and I'm having them. I'm going to be, I'm going to be 50 when they leave home. And that felt really old. But obviously then I was looking at my mom thinking, well, she was 52 and I had my first child and you know this generational thing where you're you're kind of thinking well, what does what am I going to be like that she's effectively a granny you know <laughs> my kids are just going off to I don't think nowadays it really everybody's so different aren't they and there's so, so many the, different and the ways generation of, gaps are yeah smaller yeah so so I've got to this age and I don't feel that different to the person that gave birth to them anyway and and now we're in this this is a real kind of hit home where you are in life when you're first child, I know you've experienced this recently, but your first child uh, leaves the nest because you start to see space, you start to see a bit more time, you start to see a different kind of how the future, you've thought about it, but actually now it's starting to become a reality. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot of that that you feel quite mournful about. And, you know, you're kind of grieving in a way a little bit the the opportunities that you think, oh, have I done everything I should have done? You know, have I, I you know, I always used to tease him because it was a period where he thought he'd be better off going to a boarding school when he was about 12. And I was like, there's no way you're going to boarding school. I said, you're not, you're not the young man that I, I feel I can send into the world right now. You know, you're kind of, I'm responsible for it. For, and he used to be like, well, wait, let me know where I am and I'll go. Because, you know, when they're having those kind of pushbacks against you and he thought he'd be better off living somewhere else and kind of, you know, I, I'd have more freedom at boarding school. I, you, I wouldn't have to, you know, live by all the things that you, you know. Pretty sure they've got some rules yeah exactly yeah I think I don't know where he thought he was going Hogwarts <laughs> or somewhere and um anyway he didn't go but I used to think I had all this time that you know yeah. that with him and um and we still have loads of time because he comes home a lot but yeah. but, but it, it does make you see your relationship with them differently because you do have to release you know and let them make 
bigger decisions. Obviously, you're, you're in a process of that anyway, aren't you, as a parent, where you're trying to get them to kind of make more and take responsibility. And we discussed this the other day about, you know, certain children are better at kind of handling troubles and problems. Other yeah. children, you've got to kind of, you know, you don't want to micromanage or helicopter over them, but you've got to give them a little bit more guidance on. So all of those things come into play kind of a lot more now, you know, and um, and I love it in so many ways. It's a brilliant stage of parenting because they when they come and talk to you, you know, he's always been a really open kid, Ruben, anyway, he tells you everything. But when they come and talk to you now, it's a much more ad on a much more adult basis. You know, he was um, discussing things like direct debits with me and things the other day, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, which is, is, I just don't understand it, though. How does it actually happen? <laughs> I don't know. You just, you just click something in your, in yeah. your phone and then it's, it's not real you know, money. Yeah, don't worry about exactly. it. <laughs> um, uh, so, but then Lois is still at home for at least another year. And so I'm also on the flip side of that really trying to kind of make the most of that time you know when you suddenly realize the you know that oh my god in a year's time I'll have yeah. neither of my children at home all the time and what what does that mean for Kenny and I what does it mean for even where we live because already the house is starting to feel too big you know because Ruben's a big character and he's not in it so um but then again he's told me that I'm not allowed to move for the next 10 years oh really until he can buy the house because he never wants us to oh, ever yeah yeah it reminds me I think it was my eldest son he thought that he was going to get the house when he was older <laughs> he's like where are you guys going to go it's like, not quite they sit did, down son <laughs> they did not say that there's a lovely little cottage on our own and they said you could move into the cottage on the road we don't own it by the way you can move into the cottage and I'll have the house I don't think it works like that no um and all that kind of I suppose it's like succession, isn't it? You know, and feeling yeah. like, you know, you, they're going into the world and you're changing as well. And, you know, it's it's exciting, but it's also, I can't tell you how many, my husband's feeling, I think, a lot more potently. He's been sending me pictures all the time randomly of when they're like six, you oh. know. I'll just be in a meeting with somebody and I'll see these pictures pop up. And I just was looking at my phone and I saw the, and I think he's really feeling it, you know. That yeah. kind of, that movement of time. That... Yeah, I do get that. I've been, so Sunny, he hasn't moved out, but he has left a lot of his things. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been sort of trying to help him sort out the room a bit so that I can make it a room we can use for other people now, because I really need that room back, yeah. ideally. And it's got all these little pictures from when he's small. And I did get that moment where I was like, oh, I, I'm actually, it's happened, you know, he's, mm. he's not... He might come and stay here occasionally, yeah. but is he, this is not going to be his home anymore. And it's it is a bit of a, a shift. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to be that mum stood crying in her son's yeah. empty bedroom. <laughs> no. It's not going to be me today. But I mean, I remember even when I left home, I'd been gone a couple of years, and my mum said I moved out at 18 as well. She suddenly said, oh, I just, I realised I forgot to teach you how to make a white sauce. You left home without knowing how to make a white sauce. Yeah. I was like, it's fine, Mum, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think she did try and attempt to teach me, actually, at that point. But, um, but when you roll back, I want to go back now to when they were born. What was going on in your professional life when you had your babies? I felt when I had them, I was kind of, in what I thought at the time, was the absolute best job. I was at ITV. I was the lead football presenter and things were going really, really well. And I didn't know how I was going to keep juggling and, you know, keep everything going. But I I felt it was going to be possible, you know, because I didn't have any intention of not doing what I was doing, but I knew I was going to have to modify some things in my life. So professionally, I was on a really great, you know, kind of uh, period. It was in a great period of my life. Didn't it? Didn't stay like that for very long, but um, <laughs> but that was you know. I, and I felt like I was 
I know I, now I look back and realise I wasn't, but I felt quite accomplished, you mm. know? I felt like I really knew what I was doing and I think I probably didn't as well. <laughs> when I look back. I think I definitely feel much better at my job now than I was then. But at the time, I felt like a grown-up, you know? Yeah, and well, no, that's good as well. It's good to have confidence. And when you start piling up the experience, you know, these things will count and you've learned and you've made some, you know, early mistakes and then yeah. you've progressed and you've worked with people for a few years and you start to know people... Yeah. These things do help you feel like, mm, I'm, I'm supposed to yeah. be here. But, I mean, now we're really used to seeing women folk in sports yeah. and presenting. But I would imagine then this oh, was not the case. Well, I mean, by the time I had them, there were some more coming. But when I started out, there were hardly any women doing what I did. I mean, a couple, you know. Yeah. And, and they were people like Sue Barker started presenting tennis at the BBC. And Claire Balding and Hazel Irvin were probably at the BBC, but not kind of on main, you know, main channel kind of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. But they were contemporaries um but at sky i was you know pretty much one of the only women at the time and then i went to itv and i was the only woman doing what i did and presenting live football and things and so i think what was troubling and slightly difficult for them to deal with i say them being some some of the bosses i worked with yeah. was okay it's one thing we've we've accepted this woman <laughs> to do this job but a pregnant woman <laughs> you know um and i think that was even if they didn't openly say that, that I think it was quite tricky to kind of handle a little bit of that and and it was certainly challenging for me anyway because I was doing um Champions League so I was traveling around Europe doing these games and and I and pregnant with twins it was quite a physical challenge but I was determined you know that I wanted to kind of you know keep going and not use my pregnancy as a reason to shift back from what I was doing or use you know kind of um the whole process to say oh I'm just going to take a step away now because mm. I felt like I could do it but um but I did feel more under the microscope I think um and certainly the reaction when I had Ruben and Lois um I, I remember a journalist writing a really nasty kind of piece about because I was paparazzi walking them in the pram and made this a kind of connection saying that I was, you know, instead of enjoying my babies, I was out power walking to try and get rid of my baby weight or something. And it was a completely ridiculous article. And I should have, of course, I was full of hormones and emotion. I should have just ignored it. But I just remember sitting on my bed thinking, how am I going to do this? Like, how am I going to please everybody? Because I think that's the thing at that time, you know, we're all a bit more susceptible to being people pleasers when we're younger. And I was like, how am I going to be a great mum? How am I going to be a great worker? You know, produce kind of the stuff that I've been doing, produce the, the kind of quality of work I've been doing. And, oh, be a good wife, you know. How am I going to how am I going to do all these things? Oh, and and stop people writing things that are ridiculous about me. Yeah. And, you know, so, um, I, and Kenny was brilliant with me about things like that. He was just like, doesn't, you know, like you cannot for one minute put any kind of, you know, stock in what somebody like this says. You, you just have to have the people around you that you trust and you who understand and know you. And But you can't help, you know, I think. No, we're all hope human. Yeah, also, um, it's all the stuff you're, it's your inner monologue, and isn't it? And your insecurities what, about, exactly. you know, um, what did it mean to be a working mum in that environment and how, you know, how was I going to do all those things? So, um I did have some real wobbly moments in the first couple of years where I just thought, I can't do this, you know, I'm going to do something that's way more under the radar so that I don't get, so that my mothering doesn't get scrutinised, you mm. know, and that I don't feel that, because I didn't mind my work being scrutinised, right? Yeah, but that's I, just you, you're yeah. building that. But at this bit, I felt really um, exposed and uh, vulnerable about, I think. I wonder as well, I mean, look, we all feel an immense responsibility when you bring your baby or babies home from hospital and you... Uh, a new mum and you're responsible for this tiny person and you question 
so many decisions mm. you're making and, the, you know, if your instincts are right. But I think sometimes if you've also come to it, these are much wanted babies, you've been through all the IVF, there's sometimes this extra thing of like the thing that you've been wanting so much mm. and you've ha you have to protect yourself through the process, what if it doesn't happen? Mm. So sometimes when it's actually happened and the babies are there, you haven't really even allowed yourself to think about those days mm. as much, maybe? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's probably the case, isn't it, for a lot of people having babies, actually. You yeah, think about the birthing process, you think about, you don't think about what your policy is going to be when they're four on, you know, homework, or what, what's your policy going to, you know, so all those yeah. kind of things that come into play, and I certainly hadn't really thought about how are you going to deal with, you know, if people don't, you know, think it's great to go out to work and have children and have, you know, this, how are you going to deal with criticism about the fact that you're probably going to employ somebody to help you? Because I don't live anywhere near my family and Kenny doesn't live anywhere near his family. He lives with me, obviously, but we don't. <laughs> he does, his family is in Scotland, mine in Yorkshire. Every bit of help we were going to have to have was going to be paid for. And, and that is a responsibility in itself, isn't it? Because then you're thinking, oh, I've got to really make the right decision about these people and how, you know, how is that going yeah. to work? And um, and I didn't mind that because I thought, right, you've got to be upfront about it. And not, I didn't want to be one of those people that when you do articles and interviews that you kind of make out you're doing everything. Oh, there's no way I could do everything. I was going to have to have somebody help me. And because Kenny wasn't going to, he just finished playing rugby, but he was going to start the next stage of his career as well. So he wasn't going to be at home all the time. We were very lucky because he was quite flexible. So he was around a lot, and especially in the early months of Reuben and Lois's life. And and so we were very much kind of, you know, like most people in the first charge, you're kind of juggling, aren't you? The, what, how much help does it take? You know, how mm -hmm. much, what does it, what's it like when your husband goes away, when you've got two-month-old twins? Can you go 24 hours, you know, without seeing another human being? Is it possible to kind of, you know, of course you can, but, you know, it's it's much nicer if you do see another another human being yes. and somebody pops in for 10 minutes. So all of that, uh, those early days, I, there was part of me thinking, okay, I might uh, I might not be able to do this. I'll, I'll, you know, do something else. I'll have to retrain and, uh, and do something that's much more under the radar so I don't feel I have to justify my decisions. And, you know, and then I was like, you've got to own it, actually. Yeah. That's how I kind of came to peace with it. And just being honest and being authentic and not pretending that it's anything other than a team effort. And, it, you know, and I kept in my back of my mind was always that proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise yeah, a child. Yeah, me too. It's a big one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And if I have to pay some of the members of that village, then fine. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> They're not all going to be people <laughs> in my village. Yeah, <laughs> some are on the hour and they yeah. <laughs> leave bang on a certain time. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Actually, there was a bit in your book uh, about that that stage and sort of early childhood, and I thought, oh, I wish I'd read that when I had my first at that stage, because you said something like that you actually were a bit, I was puzzled by mother guilt, but it wasn't something you automatically took on with wanting to be a working mother, and you said it, it wasn't so much that 
you know, you would have someone else doing the pureeing, but it's when mm. you didn't actually mind that no. it wasn't you that had done no, it. No, that's the thing. I, I, I think I came to peace very quickly with the fact that I wasn't going to be able to do everything, mm. you know. Um, it was more my my kind of unrest, if you like, and my restlessness was more about how the rest of the world, how I was going to explain that in a way. Do you know what I mean? So I was really happy with the idea that actually Judith, who was our um, our first nanny for a couple of years, was amazing at pureeing, right? So she she was really good at that. And while she was doing that, I could then go and change the babies. And I just needed that extra, so because then I was going to be going out to do a bit of work and, you know, and so I was really happy that other people were good at other things and, you know, they could do those parts of the job. I, I wanted to do as much as I could, but also I had this other, Kenny was very much of the mindset that, um, we had to look after our relationship as well because he felt that it was really important that, you know, um, I don't know why he was so big on this, actually. It's really interesting. He's right, though, isn't he? Yeah, he was right. Yeah. But, I mean, that's also quite uh, a challenge when you first had your babies to think that that person <laughs> is as important as, you know, as these two dependents. Yeah. Who, you know, it's not um, just that person, it's the two of you. Yeah, it's the relationship. Yeah. 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 I remember um, after, I think it might have been after our third baby and Richard gave me a, a locket with some pictures of us in it. And I said, oh, hasn't got the kids. And he went, some things are just for us. Yeah. I was like, oh, you're right. It's so easy to um, neglect that side of things. But actually, your kids love to see you happy and Even doing things together. Even now, my kids, um, and they're 18... They, I know, even though they get a bit kind of, ugh, they do really like seeing you have um, affection and, yeah. you know, touching each other. And, you know, kind of if they see Kenny kind of put his hand on mine watching TV or something, or especially my daughter, she's a real romantic and she'll be like, oh, you too. But I know she really likes it. And, yeah. and he always said um, at the very beginning, Kenny was like, look, our love is what has helped to create these babies as it transpired some really good doctors as well um but <laughs> but he said that's you know and our love is going to bring them up and you know and, and we've got to remember and that that needs work on on it as well you can't just take that for granted so um I think I was probably I would have been a much more um well that'll sort itself out do you know what I mean and actually yeah. no it doesn't or any relationship needs work doesn't it you know yeah. so he was quite wise to that yeah I think that is wise and actually I think um when I was reading a book and you said something about how you've been with Kenny over half your life, I suddenly realised it was a jolt that I'd been with Richard for half of mine. And I think there's a lot of parallels, actually. And it's nice because sometimes with conversations on spinning plates, we don't really speak very much about the partners that often, to be quite honest with you. Um, it's not always necessary, but it is nice to have a little minute to appreciate all that support that you get yeah. that gives you the freedom to, do, to really do what you do. Yeah, and to give you the, and, and the confidence as well, mm -hmm. I think, in terms of, because there's a practical side to it, you know, mm. because there's nobody I'd rather have left the kids with any day if I was working than their father, right? So, because I know he was great with them and he would, but he couldn't always be there. But it wasn't just the that, that practical backbone kind of support. It was also that, um, the nurturing and confidence, you know, um, which sometimes you need a little kind of push to get back out there and do the things that, you know, that you did. And he was always such a big fat, like fanboy. <laughs> He'd be like, you're, you're great, go, you're really great at this. You should say yes to that or you should do something like that. And, um, and sometimes I'd be like, well, you would say that, but actually he, he was completely, you know, 100% his belief, you know, that's what he felt. And so he did at times when my confidence might have been ebbing a little bit, he did fill that gap and, you know, help me believe in myself, I think. And um, yeah, and I'm really grateful for having 
had um, a great relationship. And it's interesting, uh, you know, um, uh, Catelyn Moran, what she says about um, the kind of 50-50 split of um, jobs and, you know, that um, pulling the sledge and that, you know, you, you kind of... Um, and when I read that, I'd been married probably for about 15, 16 years at the time, maybe even longer. And I kind of realised that subliminally I was, I suppose, at the beginning, trying to kind of explain that to Kenny as well about, you know, well, it's not me just telling you all the time. Sometimes you have to, you know, take responsibility for that. I think a lot of new mums find that thing where they have to kind of almost check in with their partner to say that they're going somewhere, whereas the partner doesn't feel the need to kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, do the same back. And so I think early on, there was that mutual kind of respect like that, you know, that um, he'd call it diary time. But, you know, I, I said, well, as we both know where we are, then we'll both, there'll never be a situation where one of us feels resentful yeah. that the other one's kind of able to just slip off and do, you know, their thing. And you both need those kind of things in your life, don't you, that fulfill you outside of the relationship. But I think it's just putting all those pieces together that um, is is very much, you know, it's our, it's our modern lives, isn't it? You know, It is. And, and um, <clears throat> I think it's important as well to sort of, probably a little bit like what I was saying about um, the podcast and checking in with yourself, with where you're at in life. I think relationships need that as well sometimes. Yeah. And just articulating if it's all got a little bit out of balance because yeah. nothing's ever hunky-dory all the time, you know, and sometimes you need to just check in with each other and have those boundaries and those mm. things that you know to put in place to get you back up to where you need mm. to be. Mm. It's really important. Um, but as I'm hearing you talk, I th you're so brilliant at talking about your, the, you know, the times when you felt a bit more vulnerable. And I just wondered if that's something you always felt comfortable with because I would imagine being someone blazing your own path in a predominantly very male environment, it might be something that you would normally try not to show mm, any mm. vulnerability in those situations. I would say that was probably the case until um, maybe about 10 years into my career and when I'd had the kids and they were a few years old. And I started going on trips with male colleagues, as I did a lot, and realising that when we'd finished work at the end of the day, quite a few of them wanted to talk about their families and their kids and other things would come out. And I don't know if it was because I was a woman and we were having more of these conversations. And and I felt like, actually, it's okay to, you know, to show that vulnerability to them. Because I think at the beginning, you know, you wanted to kind of look like everything was in order. <laughs> Everything's perfect. It's all great here. There's, you know, no sign I'm going to let you down here. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a safe pair of hands for you. And actually, that might be true, but you could still have, you know, um, admissions of feeling a little bit wobbly about something or insecure about something. And I suppose it's a confidence thing as well, perversely, isn't it? Actually, the confidence yeah. to admit that. And, and That's then, very true, actually. That's definitely something that happens yeah. when, as you get a bit more secure in yourself, you feel able to say bits when you're not feeling as confident. Yeah, and I think also conversely. women, the women in my industry, that as in early on, there was this outside kind of force, they putting this kind of pitting you against other women that you, you know, oh, there's another woman coming on doing, Same in music. you know, exactly and I think like, I don't, I didn't start this competition. No. Didn't I? <laughs> and yeah. also there's only, there are loads of men, right? So yeah. why, 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 why yeah, can there only hello. be one woman here? Like, you know, there's room for both of us. And yeah. once you get over that and you start to, and I think quite quickly I realized like, this is somebody else's problem, not mine. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And also realizing that you can then turn around and help those people and new people coming in and give people advice if they ask for it. And there's room for loads of people to do the job. Then I think at that point, you feel a lot more um, likely to admit those feelings of vulnerability. And, you know, there's a colleague who's going to have a baby very soon. And I 
I just felt, I don't know her that well, but I just felt she's done amazingly well in the last few years that I don't know why I needed to text her, but I just sent her and said, look, I know you might be feeling like, how am I going to do this job with, but you know, you will. And I thought maybe I'm overstepping the mark. And she sent back a lovely message just saying, thank you. Cause I, you know, I know there haven't been many of us who've been visibly pregnant doing this job and also bringing babies to work and things like that, which I never did. But now what I'm so pleased is that people feel confident to do that. We had um, Ellen White, who was the Lioness's top goal scorer, was our pundit this summer. She breastfed her baby in the green room all the time. Like she was running off sets. And she wasn't at all apologetic about that. There was no sense of her feeling like, as there shouldn't be, like, you know, why should I not do this? I thought, wow, that is progress. Because, you know, while I might have been pregnant, I certainly would never have felt the confidence that I could have walked onto set with my babies. You know, that was a whole different level of um, kind of progress, if you like. So I think it's great that, you know, not only are more women in my industry feeling they can be pregnant at work and visibly, you know, visibly so talk about football with a with a baby bump, they can then feel, well, actually, I need to bring the baby on this job. So I know Natalie Pinkham, who presents Formula One she, at the beginning, she, her mum would travel around with her on the grid, you know, Formula One grid with her baby. And <laughs> and so, you know, otherwise you, women are going to just disappear if we can't do that. You know, yeah. they're, gonna, they're not going to be visible at all in the industry. They're just going to get to a certain point and have to, you know, stop doing what they do, which seems like a real waste. <laughs> Yeah, a waste, but also, as you say, it's not necessary. And no. I think we've realised that, uh, I think the whole image, in fact, of motherhood has changed massively in the nearly 20 years since I've been a mum. Yeah. I just feel that we've got a lot more used to seeing women with all the the needs that they might feel put upon them by motherhood and mm. they're working much more open dialogue, mm. much more ways to do it, more options for how it might look like to mm. you. You don't have to have a one size fits all no. way of dealing with these things. No. Um, and it's, you know, everybody's kind of paving the way for the next one. A bit like we were saying about women being slightly pitted against each other in the workplace. It's such an old trope. I do think it's mm. fading away now, but it was exactly the same music. Mm. Late 90s, early noughties, very, mm. very similar. You were encouraged mm. to sort of look at each other kind of yeah. side on, really, which is not really very healthy. No, no. And also not how you feel. You know? No. I love spending I time with other women. Yeah, and you don't want to get into that at all because no. then you're answering questions or you're saying things you're like, well, this is not actually how I feel at all this is your this is your opinion so I'm just going to let this go and you know and as I say before there's there's a lot of room for other people and you know and it's great for I think anyway I'm quite one of those people that I, I know it's really hard staying at the top of your industry and your job and you've got to work hard all the time so the idea that you're going to somehow get a dream job and then just sit back with you put your slippers on and you know other people coming into the industry mm. they want your job that's everybody does do you know what I mean that's <laughs> yes. not that's not just one woman that's like you know everybody wants you know to do those things yeah. so I feel like I would always just want to do the best I can whether or not they're deciding to pit somebody else against me and you also you grow a thicker skin to those things when, definitely you know, so um it doesn't penetrate and worry you in the same way that it might well cheers to that <laughs> um so I so said your book made me laugh a lot but it's also responsible for making me cry as well you write so movingly about, I have to ask you about Daniel. Um, it's one of those things where I'm looking at you talking and I'm thinking, she looks so happy and I want to ask her a brother and it's going to make her sad. But I know that that's not how grief works. That's mm. not how losing someone you love works. You don't need me to remind you about Daniel. And you write about him so beautifully. I wonder if I could just ask you a little bit about what he was actually like. But it's such a, a long, it's 1992 when he died and you know, we were talking before about kind of walking past a mirror and seeing yourself as a certain way and feeling different inside. And of course, mm. he's forever 
yes. frozen in my mind as this beautiful 15-year-old who's about to be 16. And sometimes I've tried to imagine him older because with a, there's a very strong look in the boys in our family. So I think I've got an idea roughly what he would look like. Yeah. But when you say his name, immediately he's that fresh-faced, you know, gorgeous 15-year-old. And he was such a positive, happy, healthy you know, really um, popular, brilliant at football, had just signed for Leeds United. He was going to be a professional footballer. He was two months away from realising his dream. Just incredibly well-liked and at ease. You know, when there's people that are just at ease. I never had any, like we have, you know, we all have sibling moments with four of us um, before he died. And it was more me and my sister would have little kind of fights and stuff. And he was always, he always seemed to be the person that was on, I don't know, he just seemed to be the, in the right. Do you know what I mean? Everybody kind of wanted to be around him. And um, and he was just set for a great life, you know. And I, and at 19 years old, as I was when he died, I hadn't felt the need to spend every minute with him until he died because I didn't know he was going to die. So it, it's so kind of like, I look back now and think, oh, the year before he died, I was I left home for a year. I went to have a gap year. I should have stayed at home for that year. If I'd known he was going to die, I would have been at home every day and spent every minute to so I could answer your question more fully and tell you exactly what he was like, you know. But I kind of knew this teenager who lived in the house with us. You know, I didn't yeah, I didn't got no know. Reason to think yeah. Anything and happen. of course all those questions when he died, my mum who was living obviously at home with him, even they didn't know, you know, he had this girlfriend, but was she really his girlfriend? You know, what kind of yeah. relationship had they, you know, all those things that you kind of just evolved because you don't think your teenager's not going to be with you the next day. So, um, yeah, he was um, he was just a, a great kid. Well, I'm so sorry that you've had to go through losing him because you basically had to live through... What everybody has is their nightmare. It's it's getting that phone call that changes everything. And I think when you have, well, anyone significant in your life, there's a bit of it in your peripheral because mm. you know it happens sometimes. Mm. And then when you have a child, it's the, you know, the peripheral moves in a bit more. Mm. And you think, I don't know, sometimes I'll be like, is this the day that everything flips? But my heart just goes out to you and your family for having to go through all that and navigate that new the new reality mm. and when you have children it always causes you to think a little bit about the dynamic in your family and what traits come from who but it also mm. makes you think about significant moments and so there must be two one that's yet to happen and then one that already has so the yet to happen is I suppose your children reaching the age mm. that everything changes for you mm. Mm. and then also you've had to go through the point of them being 15 mm. and seeing what that looked like but then turning 16. Mm. So when your children are small, the whole thing we're encouraging to think is the world is wide and mm. your life is ahead of mm. you and everything is out there. Mm. So how have you had been able to sort of navigate having lived experience of when that next bit doesn't happen? Yeah, I didn't realise how impactful and how significant that age would be when Reuben was about to turn 16. So Reuben's birthday is in July and it was um, obviously GCSE year. So he was doing his GCSEs and I kind of realised on Daniel's anniversary that year, which is in May, oh gosh, this is about the same. Because Jordan, um, sorry, Jordan's my other brother, Daniel's birthday was also July. They were like three days apart from each other in their birthdays. Wow. And so in that May, I thought, oh, this is 
this is now almost the exact day kind of thing that he was away from being 16 as, as Ruben is. And, um, and it really did kind of hit me how we were going to cross over, you know, a threshold that he didn't. And, and also there were similarities. He was very accomplished in um, his sport, Ruben, and he, was, he wanted to be a professional rugby player. And so there were so many kind of parallels there as well. And then I kind of had to realise, you know, do I treat him? Am I treating him subliminally differently as well? You know, it was different, I think, with Lois because of that, the male kind of thing that, you know, it was the same kind of, um, he was a boy and he was a son. And, yeah, it's you completely know, natural to do that. And my parents' relationship with their son. And and yeah. and, um, and I talked I talked to Kenny about it and, and I actually talked to Ruben about it as well because I was aware that maybe I'd treated him differently, you know. Has I, had I subliminally kind of prepared myself for some kind of disappointment or some kind of, you know, um, experience that, you know, was was inevitable was it you know was this kind of you know I don't think I thought about it in those terms but I think when and also then understanding even greater my parents grief um yeah. because you know it's that person on the edge of adulthood and where they're going and their possibilities and all of those things that you know conversations you're having with your teenagers about their futures and you know and it's what, immense isn't yeah, it yeah what they want to do and where they want to go and um which we were having with Reuben and seeing that through my parents eyes again you know I understood it of course when he died how horrific it was for a parent to lose a child but I think it it came back again in a different way and because even when I had them I had another feeling like that you know when I, they were born yeah. I suddenly realized that that love and that relationship and how you know um how impossible it is to kind of put yourself in that position and um and so yeah that that period of time and then even more kind of bizarrely a few months later because of his sport Ruben was asked to go all the players at his club had to have heart screening because he played at a certain level of rugby and that was something they were already doing well they yeah they must have just started doing this in the previous mm. few years and they all had to go to get a kind of make sure their hearts were and of course on the form he's filling in is there anybody in the family who's had a heart you know my brother had a thing called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy it was instant death basically no no warning sign just the heart collapses and he died on the spot and um when Ruben was writing kind of the form and I was helping with the form oh my god they're going to read this form and think like what <laughs> um and he wasn't it wasn't genetic what happened with Daniel so there was no reason why Ruben would but they did take extra care and look you know kind of make sure the screening um was really looked at and how whether he'd need more screening but there was nothing there at all so it was just a complete um aberration with Daniel but even that I thought well this is progress you know because had Daniel had that a few months before he died, we would have known then that his heart was already showing these signs of being, you know, kind of very damaged, even though he hadn't shown any signs as a person at all, you know, mm. so he could go for a 10 mile run, he could, he slept well, he ate well, he looked great. So there was nothing outside that was showing us. So yeah, there was a very, it was a very strange period, actually. Um, and it did help me understand my, my, my parents dealt with his death in very different ways. And it helped me understand my dad a bit more, I think. Um, and, you know, I've, I always felt immense sorrow for him and compassion for him, but it probably deepened, I think, at that time. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, when the wheel turns, how your perspective shifts around and mm. you step into different shoes for that bit and you're like, oh, I can see it's the parent now. Mm. Start to touch the edges of what they went through as well. But mm. anyway, I'm just sorry that it happened. I think it's and that, the bit where you write about him, especially when... Um, 
you're with him after he's died and you're speaking to him and it was just the simplicity of saying I loved him so much and of course love doesn't stop when no. someone's not here it just sort of takes on a new shape and I guess you almost kind of have to put a bit of him in, in you mm. carry him with you and then they the legacy is that that yeah. you carry them you live you've the, the best outcome of that pain I think is to try and live your life in the fullest way to mm. honour the fact that they mm. didn't get that opportunity and also because that is what they would want yeah and I think that's exactly what my immediate reaction was you know I went off to university and I became this kind of like you know um, carpe diem times 100 I'm going to do everything and I'm going to you know make sure that I'm going to live my life. I think I was already a kind of go-getting, kind of busy person, but I was really going to do everything I possibly could to live the fullest life I could. And and not only that, I was going to tell other people to live their life <laughs> kind of fully. And, um, and then I realised after about a year, I kind of crashed a bit and realised I needed to get some help um, because I hadn't really processed his death in a in a in the way that I needed to. Mm. I'd just been running like this, you know, really big ball of energy that wanted to do loads of things and have him completely at the front of my mind all the time when I was doing that. Um, but I also needed to deal with it in, in a different way because I don't think that was going to be healthy long-term. And no, well, grief isn't always chronological. It's not no, chronological. No. And I, it morphs depending on what else is going on around you and where you're at and what you're processing. So Yeah, and who you're with and, yeah. you know, um, and I think... You know, I've seen that in my own family, how everybody has dealt with it so differently. Yeah. And there is no right or wrong way. I Definitely mean, eventually not. there's a way that, okay, that those behaviours are quite unhealthy. And if you want to live a better life, you're going to have to do something about this, you know, yeah. because you can take grief and it can become a really destructive ally, you know, that doesn't help you at all. Yeah. Or it can be, you know, something that you can use in a, eventually in a positive way to try and inspire you and try and um, live in that person's or give that person's memory a really, you know, kind of positive reflection. And when, you know, you look back, you know, obviously over your life, you, you, I'd prefer to feel like that, you know. Um, and I think in my parents, I saw two different ways of, of dealing with it. And, and also what it made me realise is you can't, you can't make somebody <laughs> grieve in a, you know. No. I've been asked, like, how would you give people advice about that? And I just think you, you've got to just be there for people and yeah. try and, you know, try and listen and try and help. And when they ask for help, maybe, then, you know, then there are things that will help them. But um, but it's I've had this woman called Julia Samuel on my podcast a oh, few that's times. That's so funny. You mentioned how she was literally in my mind while you were talking. Really? Yeah. And she, I think... She writes brilliantly on mm. grief and I found her, I, I've had her on as a special episode actually about grief and then I've read her books and I really kind of, everything she says I think makes a lot of sense about grief, you know, in yeah. terms of um, how people react obviously so totally differently yeah. and how, you know, how it can be, um, how you can help, you know, you can help people but it's not, it's not an exact science. <laughs> no, and I think you have to be very forgiving with yourself too because sometimes... Mm the reality of the fact that it's just something really shit that happened. It's yeah. like just going to yeah. be, that's what we're going to be looking yeah. at for a little minute. But yeah. I well, know. I, yeah, I think, and, and also I think for me when I was younger, because I was so young when it happened, you know, 19, I think I thought at that point that, you know, things like that were going to happen to me all the time. Exactly. You know, this is, okay, shit stuff's going to happen a lot. And so really protect yourself against it, you know, the world. Yeah. And actually 
you know, don't let anybody really in because, um, it, you know, you don't want to be too um, open to that disappointment again. And I had to learn, you know, to, to feel emotion in a different way and not be so kind of hardened to life because otherwise, you know, I was going to get hurt, you know. And I think that's what happened with my dad in lots of ways because he just, I think he just felt he couldn't love you know, again, you know, in anybody because he was going to be hurt again. And um, and that was hard to see, I think, for, especially for my younger brother, who was only six at the time. Oh, so, yeah, that is hard. Yeah. I mean, it's the concentric circles. It affects everything they're Yeah, after, well, the ripples it? go on and on yeah. because, obviously, you know, I'm fascinated in kind of how patterns repeat as well and how yeah. family I don't mean in terms of deaths but in terms of behaviors and absolutely and um and how you can break that you know it's not it's not um a fait accompli that your family is like this do you know what I mean or this is what we you know that you you can help um and change that direction you know yeah um, I think it also helped when I met Kenny we were in our mid-20s he had lost um his cousin who was like a brother to him when he was similar age his cousin was a lot older his cousin was in his early 30s and left two small children again it was a tragic accident where he wow. you know he was alive and healthy in the morning and he was dead 24 hours later and I think because he'd experienced this sudden horrific you know loss um he was very understanding I think of how that changes you but also how you live with that and you know he was very openly emotional about his cousin in a way that you know I had not really seen kind of I've been near somebody since my brother had died that was very tuned into that you know I think yeah um, which allows you to be able to talk yeah, about it as well yeah, yeah it doesn't become this scary topic to bring yeah. up when it's in your mind anyway yeah. um ages ago I spoke to Mary Berry who lost her son in a mm. car accident and she said that it did she said she found her way to deal with her grief but one thing she found she really struggled with was actually other people getting very dramatic and annoyed and wound up about small things in life. <laughs> She's like, oh, you've obviously never had anything like this happen to you. Yeah. If you can let yourself get in a state like that, that's something inconsequential yeah, as that. Yeah. It's the only flicker yeah. of anger yeah, I saw. Yeah, I wrote about that as well in, in my books. When I went to university, I would be, uh, especially my first year at university, uh, was, I was fresh off this experience, basically. You know, he died in the May and I'd gone to university in the October and I was totally amused by people that would be annoyed by not being able to get the accommodation they wanted in their second year you know the flat wasn't going to be quite as nice as the other you know like properly you know having meltdowns about it and I was like what is the problem what is your problem internally I was saying this to myself because it's internal monologue and I, I had to really take a step back after a few months and realize that the other people's shit and their problems was was actually permissible that was their problems it was okay and I could you know I didn't have to grade it all I had yeah. to you know otherwise I was going to find life tough <laughs> yes. because everybody was going to be quite you know because people generally in life thankfully what happened to us doesn't happen to you know to every family on the street and and that's great because you don't want that kind of you know tragedy to befall people but they will experience in their life disappointment but it might not be to that extent so I had to learn how to kind of process that you know so that I could be an empathetic kind friend yes <laughs> while at the same time I'm gritting your teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's going to be all okay you know yeah. that don't you it's going to be yes. fine yeah. I understand why you feel like your life I think is it's over the same thing happens be in your essay, yeah. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. when you have kids you have to remind yourself don't you like when my son first had heartbreak with a girl when he was mm. 15 I had to really stop myself going oh my god you'll t you'll so get over this and you'll be like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no no their problems are huge yeah because he to... was such a poet about it and he kind of had to have a day of school and said to really? me yeah he oh, said wow, there is that. a space here where my heart was and it is empty and I when does this feeling fill and he was properly <gasps> like 
really heartbroken. And me husband and I, he, Kenny had to sleep with him the first night. He won't mind me saying this now, Reuben, because he said, I just, I, I can't imagine like falling asleep and how I'm going to feel when I wake up. And he, oh, wow. I know. And it was, I mean, it's lovely that he feels he can love that fully. Oh, I mean, it's he, an amazing thing. All in at 15 years old, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so uh, I was, after a few days going to Kenny, like, at what point? I mean, you know? <laughs> I think a girl wolf whistled at him on the Tuesday at school and he came home skipping. He was oh, okay, like, yeah, fine. he was fine after five days. But and when I told him it might be a week, he went, a week? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, every song on the radio reminds me of her. Every song is written to me. They're all writing songs to me. I remember him saying that and I just started like, inside. I was sniggering because I remember thinking, I remember that feeling. So like, do I. I, I really remember that feeling. <laughs> Where you go, how does she know to write this song? Yes, oh my <laughs> word, they're speaking to me. Yeah. It's amazing. But you can't obviously belittle those experiences, can no. you? As a parent, you have to fully, you know, kind of embrace their emotions. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, their if emotions it's real to and, them, it's, that's just yeah. it. And minimizing or dismissing it only means they won't come and talk to you about it, no yeah. matter what it is. So, yeah, you have to let it be as big as it is. But it's also, you know, you reflect back on when you did that same thing. Anything? I mean, thank goodness there's music there because music yeah. gives them that yeah. blare the out, you know, all by of... myself or whatever it might be for their bedroom. <laughs> well, with the modern day equivalent of that, I'm not even sure. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think those things are important. But thank you for um, talking to me about Daniel because it seems such a keystone hmm. moment for you in terms of the before, yeah, the after. Yeah, absolutely yeah. huge. And I think because you... I think I was a, an age which was so pivotal anyway at yeah. 19 and such changes kind of going on and in your still, life. And you yeah, know, still, teenage brain still, still kind of developing and, yeah. and all those things. So I, so when I sat down to write my book, I could only start there. I sat down and thought, well, this is the day I have to kind of start from yeah. because even though there is a before, which I'll write about, it very much was where everything changed and, um, and where I think I... I really started to grow as a person and learn a lot in those years that I wouldn't want my kids to have to go through to learn in life. But I value now more than I think I realised at the time, you know, that those experiences actually gave me a lot of human kind of capabilities. And yeah. um, and you don't want to say kind of, you know, that like, but there was, in a way, there were some kind of superpowers that I you know, kind of experience that I didn't know at the time were giving me qualities and, you know, um, it sounds like I'm kind of glorifying, you know, his death in a way, but it, I think I learned so much. I think that's what probably, I, you know, I really learned a lot. And, yeah. Um, I hear that. I don't hear it like you're glorifying. I hear it like you're saying that it, it was, you know, had such magnitude, but it also is the making of you because yeah. it had to make you, you know, put a... You had to work on so many aspects yeah, of yourself yeah, yeah. to be able to survive yeah, it, but then to actually excel as well. Yeah, and that's that takes that takes a lot, and that's emotional. That's layers upon layers. When in the middle of it, there's something so raw. And mm. for your, I had, you know, I, lots of things that happened to me around that time. I didn't experience grief like that, but things that happened that still I refer back as being a really pivotal moment. Mm. And your kids will have something their version of it. Yeah. Whatever it may be, a yeah. trip they go on, someone they meet, someone who breaks their heart, a business yeah. thing they start that fails, whatever it might be, there will be their version of yeah. actually looking back that changed everything. Yeah. And I wouldn't deal with anything afterwards the same if I hadn't gone through that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of... And like you say as well, I think even though, you know, it's 31 years ago now, it's, it's a long time, because um, I, 
I, I really don't mind talking about him. And I don't mean that in a way that I feel like it's, you know, that obviously he wasn't known. He wasn't a famous person. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't um, a headline making person. But I'm so proud of who he yeah. was that I don't mind talking about him. And I also talk to my kids. You know, my kids will talk about him. And and I think it's I think that's important in our family as well to keep that, you know, that memory alive. But I think it's more reflective of kind of what grief is as well and how how you can get over things that are really really bad and disappointing and you know I mean disappointing is a mild way of you know expressing that but you know that that won't always happen to people it won't be a death it'll be something else as you say and actually I think that's why I don't mind talking about it because I think it's important that people you know know that you know that they can come through something and I've seen it in the last couple of years with friends who've suddenly lost their partners and things and you know and I see that depth of grief and I just kind of want to put my arm around and go you'll get you'll get there you'll get there it'll be different but you'll get there but I know at the beginning you can't say that to somebody because they just are not ready to hear that they'll get there you know and you see the different yeah. stages they're going through and and it, it's tough you know it's never it's never an easy kind of transition for people no and I think also it's nice to talk about him because if I lost anybody I cared about that much I'd want everybody to know their name that yeah. would actually really matter to me I'd be like let's say their name mm. you know that's I think that's a something you can give people who aren't here anymore just yeah. that moment like they existed they walked yeah. this earth they were here let's acknowledge that well thank you I appreciate that very much and um yeah as I said I'm just sorry you had to go through any of it um do you want to talk to you about something that's a complete change in subject? Because I'm slightly fascinated by the fact that you did a lot of rhythmic gymnastics. I think that's so cool. <laughs> like, I know it hasn't had much in the way of like... Airtime. Yeah. But I think if the internet had been around then, I think Instagram loves a rhythmic gymnast. It does. And when yeah. you get into the algorithm of, of, you know, which me and my sister, she lives in the States now, and she was a rhythmic gymnast too. And she'll send me little clips and go... And I said to her, imagine if we'd had the internet when we were kids. Yeah. Because we used to watch old VHSs of Russian gymnasts <laughs> yeah. and, stuff and wear the tape out. We'd we would just be watching routines all the time. And yes. even my old rhythmic gymnastic pals, you know, one of whom I played golf with this morning, we still go, oh my God, you, I mean, was that the sport we did? Like, we kind of like, you yeah. know, we love it, yeah. So cool. And it brings such joy. Yeah. I love watching it. And also when you were describing the outfits you would wear, the leotards <laughs> with things stuck on and sprayed on, yeah. I thought, I'm pretty sure I've won some of those in auctions on eBay. <laughs> so after we finish chatting, you should come out. Oh, I'm pretty sure I've got some of your old outfits. <laughs> Honestly, my sister and I, my mum must have just thought we were like what are they doing on the kitchen table we were because these the best leotards seem to be in other parts of the world like the leotards we could get in the UK yeah. were just never as good so we would try and replicate them with glitter and you know marker pens and various of course and dyes and all sorts we weren't allowed to have adornments on the leotards right but obviously, obviously but as in they weren't allowed to flap or anything fair enough yeah which my mum thought was you know terrible she would have loved us in more marabou <laughs> a lot of diamante <laughs> she would have loved a cape you know um it oh would God, have all been yeah <laughs> but um but we were we were desperate to kind of replicate those and then we would dye our ribbons and we would you know my mum would go to her, her laundry and be like what has gone on here today <laughs> who's been in the washing machine and um, and my sister and i were just like you know we loved it it was such a but it was weird because on the one hand, you know, we kind of the sport part of it was really important, you know, which we love the training and everything. But the the great thing about rhythmic is it's unashamedly kind of showy as well, you yes. know, and that all that part of it was great. So you kind of like you you're kind of crossing over slightly into showbiz, you know, Definitely. <laughs> it's sport meets showbiz. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> it set the tone. It's yeah, like yeah. literally been life thereafter. <laughs> yeah. Why are football kits so plain? It's true. <laughs> Why do they not have more diamantes on them? That would be, imagine that. <laughs> Yeah, they could have anything on there. Yeah, the lionesses should have like little kind of strips of kind of rhinestones or yeah. Yeah, that would be good. I'm going to suggest that. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I love that so much. When I was reading, I was like, I just want to watch the routines now. But it's the music as well because when we did it, you were only allowed one instrument, so most people had piano. Oh yeah, that brilliant story about the guy. About you the guy with the harmonica. Pop. Yeah, I ended up going to this guy's house, a little terrace house in Leeds, because he played the harmonica with my cassette recorder, recording him play the harmonica for me for my routine my mum outside in her Ford Cortina going what's going on in that house when my wow. my daughter plays 10 pounds to some bloke to play the harmonica I mean you know you couldn't make it up with me putting a postcard in a shop window anybody play the harmonica um, and just then, and then, then sitting through hours and hours I was about 15 of John Williams uh, cassettes because he was a brilliant classical guitarist and he played his albums would just be the guitar so I could just get guitar music off it and um, yeah I loved I loved that part of it um yeah, it was, it was, a, you know what, it was a strange but good way to spend your 15, 16 year old yeah. kind of years, I think. It was, yeah, it was fun. And if it, you ever hear music now, do any of the little oh. moves come out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I start, I mean, that and also like, I mean, I didn't go as far as you and Strictly, but I hear my routine, Strictly routine oh, yeah. music. Takes and you right back, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, I did a jive to um, Rod, uh, Elton John Saturday, good Saturday one. night, yeah. And so whenever that comes on, Kenny goes, right, come on, everybody, clear, clear, the, clear the kitchen. She's going for it. She's going. And you still remember it? Yeah, but in the last, I, I need to look back at it because I've started to kind of like realise I'm starting to forget it. You know, yeah. I, I used to know. Didn't like, you do it in like 2007 or something? Yeah, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> a long time but for the, remembering Yeah, it. but the jive was still, you know, kind of, uh, he, I mean, Kenny's the same because he went a lot further than me. So he'll be like, we'll be driving along and suddenly a mute piece, he'll go like this with his arm. I'm now putting my arm out in a strictly kind of, he'll go, oh, do you remember I did my rumba to this? Wow. <laughs> and I have those flashbacks with gymnastics music, so but it's more things like um, Tchaikovsky and, you know. Just a really good harmonica. Yeah, yeah, some good <laughs> harmonica music. <laughs> well, I, I, there's so many other things I could ask you about, but I feel like I've taken a lot of your time, so I'm just going to pick two things. I do want to ask about the Freeze Your Fear. Mm. How did you find that experience with Wim Hof? I, I didn't know what at all mm. I was getting myself into because they, they deliberately didn't tell us. You know, they, oh, they, they didn't. Oh, one of those. Yeah. So they it's said. Like, I can look surprised on telly, I promise. You well, can tell me what I'm Well, they said Wim Hof, you see. So <laughs> I thought it was going to be all, you know, they're going to be some cold. Um, I thought <laughs> maybe some ice baths, maybe, but not the level that we went to. Um, and I certainly didn't foresee the height stuff happening. Mm. Um, but I understand why that was so important because it's all about, for me, that was about how you can put blockages in your mind about things and tell yourself yeah. that you're not something you know and I told myself that I was scared of heights um and it transpired um there, there I was two days later kind of forward abseiling down a mountain and you know standing on the edge of a cliff doing a yoga pose or eventually jumping off a 400 foot bridge which I would never in a million years have done had something not happened in that process over those three weeks where I'd released those blockages and I think for me why that was important was um, you, it might not be heights, you know, it might be that you tell yourself that you're not the kind of person that goes, and I don't mean me necessarily, but in life that I'm, I can't do that job because I'm not that kind yeah. of person. I'm not the kind of person that does running or I'm not the kind, you know, and I think we tell ourselves these kind of messages sometimes that, that can be quite harmful, you know, and I don't mean that in a, you know, harmful, they're not going to kill you, but they're going to inhibit and they're going to stop you in life doing things yeah. that are exciting and interesting. And and then you can pass those on to your 
kids as well, if you're not careful, you know, those kinds of limiting behaviours. So, um, and I'd hoped I had never done that with my kids, but I definitely, um, through doing this, realised that, you know, that even subliminally, sometimes you can have those conversations. So that was amazing to do. But the the whole breathing process I found extraordinary. And that sounds so intense, yeah, unexpectedly. Really unexpected. Yeah. I mean, we walked into that tent that day expecting to lie down, have a nice lie down for about 10 minutes and, you know, instead had these unbelievably um, real kind of uh, experiences that were obviously through through the mind, but the, the, the breathing took you into this place, you know, it was like, um, I'm not somebody who has done magic mushrooms or, you know, those kinds of things, but I imagine this is what a trip feels like, you wow. know, and that's so sort of vivid and yeah, psychedelic. So vivid. I mean, to the point where how I kept saying to Tamsin, Tamsin Athwaite was doing um, the, the show with us and this experience had led me to her mum had died not long before. I didn't know much about her at all, but I knew her mum had died. So it wasn't a great surprise in the sense that I knew her mum had died, but this woman was telling me that she was her mum and that she had all this love she had to give her. And it was so strong. I was in tears when I was doing this breathing, but it was so strong. It was like, if I could, if love was a glass, do you know what I mean? It was like, it was so real that I could almost touch it. And I, when I was lying there, I was kind of thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to get up in a minute because I'm going to have to give her this love that her mum just keeps telling me she's, you know. And so when we stood up, Tamsin hadn't had the same kind of experience and she was slightly kind of going, what was all that about the breathing? And then she looked at me and just burst into tears because she saw me crying and I put my arms around her and I was like, your mum's here and she just loves you so much. <laughs> and she was like, whoa, like that was, and I felt, there was part of me that just felt completely stupid even saying that, you know. And Lee Mack was the host of the show and he said to me afterwards, when you did that, he said, we were watching you on the monitor, we were going, okay. Gabby, Gabby's just, he said, I've known you for a long time. He said, and I kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I said, I couldn't believe what I was feeling. It was this such a, a real um, experience of this love. And as well as having all these other kind of incredible um, insights into like, I could feel like I could see my body inside, like I could see mm. the blood running through my veins. And um, and what transpired was that he'd not just done like he'd three tell. rounds of breathing. Put something in your drink? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was magic he mushrooms. Was blowing, he was blowing <laughs> stuff through the airwaves. That was, but he'd done like 10 rounds of breathing. Normally you do like two or three to relax and feel mm. kind of chilled. And sometimes your fingers tingle. Most times your fingers tingle and your feet tingle. Yeah. But he would gone, he'd gone really deep. So oh, it was like, you typical taking it that next <laughs> level um and that was what i took from the breathing though was just how um how powerful breathing yes. like that can be in terms of relaxation deep relaxation deep um detoxifying it's really it's really amazing for your system to have that breathing and and what i loved about the show as well was that when i talked about it to people breathing and cold showers are free so you, I wasn't coming out of a show going, well, what you need to do is you need to go to Whole Foods and you need to buy about yeah. 4,000 pounds of herbs. And, you know, it was this was stuff that anybody could access, you know, yeah. and, um, and do and change. Like ever since then, my husband's done cold showers every day. He's really turned on to that and really helps lots of things, including psychological as well as physiological things, you know, um, inflammation and things. And so I learned a lot, actually. It was, I was the right point in my life. I was 48 when I did it. And it was kind of like, a good time to do something like that and just shift my mindset on something and see things differently. I think I was probably a little bit more cynical about, you know, oh, yeah, okay, what was he doing? <laughs> what's this guy with the beard and the um <laughs> and the big poncho? What's he up to? And, you know, he lives and breathes it, obviously. That is his passion. But um, but I think you can do it in small doses, you know, you can you can dip into that 
world and get a lot out of it. Yeah, I think it's amazing how powerful it was. And I, 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 funnily enough, I watched the show thinking, I don't like cold, I don't like cold showers, I don't like all that, but I actually feel like maybe that could be something quite good for me because I don't Yeah, do well, that's it. part of the reason why it works. I, I had a um, psychoanalyst, no, he's a, he's a professor of um, extreme and adverse conditions at Portsmouth University, and he was analysing the psychological, physiological and pathological um, responses from adverse conditions. And th- he said one of the things about cold water is that it's not just the physiological, so it obviously does help with inflammation, but because you're putting yourself through something that's tough, it's what it does to you mentally in terms of uh, telling yourself kind of that you've, you know, you've gone through this and that fortitude and that experience is actually really strong uh, as a mental strength um, kind of builder, if you like. And and doing something that's tough, I think, is it's actually quite good for you, you know, yeah. to push yourself sometimes out of your comfort zone I, is, I get that. is a good thing. And especially when you get to a certain stage of life where you might have decided you don't think you can anymore, you know, and it might then take you somewhere. I, I do a bit of cold water swimming on Sundays at a lake near me. And one of the women I swim with, you know, that's, that's her big thing, I think, that she likes. She used to be a stunt woman. Oh, wow. And so she's in her mid-40s and she, I think, doesn't like the idea that she won't keep pushing herself. Because as a stump woman, you imagine that's kind of what, you know, you might have a certain mindset. <laughs> um, but I see that with other women who swim there. And it is mainly women because Kenny keeps asking to come. And I'm like, I, I don't think you're actually banned. <laughs> but you'd be in a minority and you might feel, and we were saying the other day, maybe they, my friend of mine's got um, a husband, does a male swim club at, uh, where they live. Um, and I do think there's something else about the community aspect of it that's really important. Yeah, I can totally see that. Mm. Well, you've done so many amazing things in your career, but actually the thing I wanted to ask you about, just because it's sort of another one of my... So if I go to a comedy club and I'm watching a comedian on stage, I feel like if I catch eye with them directly, I might quantum leap and find myself on stage (laughs) having to do stand-up. But you actually had to live that experience when you did stand-up. I think it was in 2012. Yeah. And I just wondered how you found the experience of having to actually go on stage in a comedy club, because I think that sounds... So simultaneously, like slightly exciting, but also terrifying. It was one of the most um, terrifying and physically, like, you know, when people say they're so nervous that it manifests itself in all kinds of ways, whether Mm. you start getting really sweaty or you're, you know, you have a headache, you maybe need to go to the toilet more than you normally would, all those things that happen to you. I mean, it really was profoundly horrible, that feeling. But but what was lovely when, before I went on, I was doing this thing for um, comic relief, sport relief, where it was five sport-related people, including Tyson Fury and um, Michael Vaughan, who all had volunteered, I was one of them, to learn to do a stand-up comedy routine with a comedian as your patron-like. Who was, so mine was Paddy Kilty, who was training me. And backstage, people like Jason Manford, all these amazing comedians who were used to places like the O2, and you know, we were at the Bloomsbury Theatre, which I think is about four to 500 people. They were all in the same state. So these guys have been doing it for years. They've been doing comedy for, you know, in front of thousands of people, but they still got into that. They were still really nervous. You could tell. And if that's reassuring or worse. Well, it kind of reassured me that actually (laughs) it doesn't matter how, you know, how amazing you get at this. You still got that edge. But as soon as you go on stage and the first joke has landed, it is like a drug. Like you literally are looking for the next laugh and then you totally get why they do it because you're like, wow, that was such a powerful connection. I mean, it must be when you're on stage singing and you performing and you just know the audience is totally with you if you're at a festival or something and they're totally in your, you know, thrall basically. They're loving what you're doing. It's very powerful. Yeah. I also try and do 
jokes in between songs. <laughs> and if they all laugh, oh my gosh, I'm well, it is, cloud it's, nine. Yeah, if I'm hosting like a corporate awards or something and I throw a joke in and the audience like it, you know, oh, so it's such a lovely feeling, isn't it? It's one of the greatest things to make a room full of people laugh. And, and so I came off stage and I knew it had gone well. You know, I could tell it had gone well. I ended up winning. Um, you know, I got given my trophy by Claudia Wingleman, which was like, yeah. you know, uh, fantastic. And I got home that night and I remember sitting on the kitchen worktop. We live not far from where we are now. And there's a little chip shop at the bottom of the parade and we got chips on the way home. We sat on the kitchen worktop and I had my little trophy and my bag of chips. And I was saying to Kenny, I think I want to do this the rest of my life. <laughs> I was like, totally, like I was, what, 39? I said, this is all I want to do. This is what I want to do. And he's, because like, we discussed earlier on, he's like, do it, go for it. <laughs> I went to bed writing new routines. I was going to like, you know, wow. I was like, oh, and then I woke up in the morning and I went, I've got a mortgage, I've got, you know, I've, got, I've got school run, I've got stuff to do, I've got real life. And there's a bit of me that kind of thinks you should have just at least kind of kept going as a hobby. Do you know what I mean? And like, and but I didn't have Paddy Kilty with me every day telling me what to do. You no, know? So, and also, isn't it quite nice that you did your life as a stand-up comedian, a career as a stand-up comedian, <laughs> was award-winning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sold out the Bloomsbury Theatre. Yeah, uh, you and, never had a night where they didn't laugh. It all, yeah. Like, you peaked. I kind of, the whole thing, so yeah, good. you're right, absolutely. I, I, <laughs> I hit the jackpot, I can move on from <laughs> yeah. there. Didn't sell out the O2, but, you know, it doesn't matter. It was, uh, yeah, it was a surreal day because I'd been given this award by Tesco's that lunchtime. Tesco mum, celebrity mum of the year or something. I think basically they just have lots of mums of the year and they want somebody of the telly to come for the, it was lovely, a lovely lunch. And I'd taken the kids with me to that because, I mean, I wouldn't have got it if it wasn't for them, right? So <laughs> I took them along and they Fair loved table. it as well. And we had this really lovely lunch. And then I sent them home while I went off to the Bloomsbury Theatre to do this comedy and came home with it. And I said that night, I said to Kenny, this is like, you know, all these different facets of, of you as a person kind of like in one day kind of being, you know, kind of um, coming into sharp focus. And and I guess that's, you know, I was, I say, I was just on the edge of being 40. And I suppose that's the start of where I really started to feel like, well, you can be lots of things to lots of people and it's okay to not please everybody all the time, but it's nice to make a few of them laugh some yeah. of the time. <laughs> and I guess also it's that thing of getting yourself to a stage in life and then going, but I wonder what happens if I try that? I've never done it. Yeah. What happens? And, and I suppose it, that sets the tone for things you're still doing now. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, yeah. it's not the end of the world. What's the worst thing that can happen? And I suppose also showing my kids that it's okay to laugh at yourself, you know, because a lot of the gags were obviously at my expense. And I didn't want, I don't want them to feel that, you know, that they couldn't try things. So it was a, it was a lesson in that as well. Um, although they're so competitive for them, it was all about the trophy. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but did you bring a trophy home? Um, so yeah, it's, and it's, you know, now I'm 50, God, I mean, you know, there's no, um, I'm not, not going to change back, I don't think, and be somebody that says no in case I fail. I think that's pretty much the, the, the template for the rest of my life now. Yeah, I don't see that in your future at all. I think, <laughs> I think it's going to continue to be a series of exciting adventures for sure. Oh, Thank so. you so much, Gabby. Thank you, Sophie. It's been and lovely I'm, to I'm not kidding about the leotards. I can go and show you some really funny ones. <laughs> well, I've still got boxes I could probably send you for your, your shows, you know, that you'd... Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah. I say I have, but um, my mum, we were talking about kids leaving home, my mum sent boxes and boxes of stuff to my house when I was about 24. I said, like, what are you doing? She went, I'm moving you out. <laughs> and so, I, they're, <laughs> so they're probably somewhere in my attic, actually. Okay. Well, if there's a job lot, auction, bids, I'll do you a yeah, 20 quid for the lot. <laughs> <laughs> the die was more than that. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Make it 25. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what a wise woman, eh? 
such a lovely conversation and I hope our paths cross again soon because I really liked talking to Gabby. I thought she was brilliant. And uh, actually, I don't know when it's going out, but I spoke to her for her podcast as well. So you can catch that. I will, I'll share that with you when I've done that, when that's published. Um, and in the meantime, well, just kind of wish me luck here, really. I feel I feel like today I've very much got like lockdown head, um, which is a feeling I haven't had for ages, but where I'm trying to do things and there's just my headspace is a bit crushed and I I'm feeling good about life like there's lots of reasons to be cheerful and I'm so excited about the things I'm doing this year but um I also feel like I just need everything to settle you know what I know this is going to sound insane but having all this lovely stuff with the murder has actually also made me feel a little bit weird I think I'm very British and I'm very good at dealing with the kind of like pootling along and then whenever things kind of have an acceleration it makes me feel a bit icky so like sometimes Richard will start being like oh my gosh, I've just seen that the song's doing this on this chart or it's this on this, and I'm like, you have to stop talking about it now. I can't actually listen to it. It's like making me feel weird. Um, and I think that's, that's probably quite British of me, isn't it? Um, what else was I going to say to you? Um, oh, I'm starting songwriting next week. Well, I do, I've done one or two sessions, but I've got, I'm basically back in the studio um, making a new album. This is what I really wanted. I can't wait. I'm ready. I'm so ready. And I want to write some really... Happy, strong pop dance that's really for where I'm at in life as well. So let's see what that looks like. To be quite honest, I'm not entirely sure, but <laughs> I'm going to have a go. Anyway, in the meantime, keep safe, keep happy. And I will speak to you again this time next week if you're still free. Um, more lovely women coming your way. And in the meantime, yeah, take care. All right. Off to go and deal with the smalls. All right. Speak to you later. Thank you. Bye. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.